Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Events over the past year have shone a light on racial inequality across the globe. Australia is not an exception. This nation's journey towards a more just, equitable and reconciled identity still has a long way to go. With that in mind, and in the spirit of reconciliation, we acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging, and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people today. Hello and welcome to Policy Forum Pod. I'm Sharon Bessel, I'm Professor of Public Policy at the Crawford School, and I'm Director of the Children's Policy Centre and the Poverty and Inequality Research Centre. And I'm Anagreta Hunter. I'm a cardiologist and I'm the Human Futures Fellow at the College of Health and Medicine here at the Australian National University. Anagreta, here we are at the second episode in our new mini-series, which is called Systems Under Strain. And at the moment, we know, as we've discussed on the pod over, over many, many months, many of our systems are under incredible strain. We're beginning this series with some issues around climate, the environment and biodiversity, but we're going to be moving on to talk about the other systems that are critical to people and to to our planet, that are critical to flora and fauna and to our everyday lives and to our collective futures. Last week, as part of this new series, which we hope will be on the listening list of ministers in the new government, we talked with Mark Howden. And Anna Greta, it's always so great to talk with Mark. And he highlighted not only the incredible challenges that we face, but also the real possibilities for change. Absolutely. Sharon, we've been speaking now for the last couple of years on the serious policy challenges that are faced across a spectrum of of particularly government policy and particularly in the Australian context. And there is this new sense of optimism. Um, But as we assess the challenges, they're really quite profound. And speaking with Mark Howden about climate change, and particularly in light of the State of the Environment report last week, was sobering. And yet there were definitely tones of optimism and, and change. I really am hoping that this podcast is on the listing list of, of the new teams that are part of the, the new government. Yeah, and, and one of the things that strikes me when we talk to people like Mark and to many of the guests that we have on the pod is that while there are incredible challenges, you know, and, and in part those challenges come from many years now of policy neglect and political neglect, you know, there are solutions. You know, there are some very smart, very committed people working on these issues and the solutions are available. One of the exciting things at the moment, I think, is that there is the possibility to have real conversations about how we might bring about transformation. As our listeners know, the Policy Forum pod is based here at the Crawford School of Public Policy at the ANU, where we are talking about these kinds of policy challenges and what we need to do in response on a daily basis. You can check out some of the amazing range of degree programs and short courses that we have on offer at on our website, 
you can visit crawford.anu.edu study and you'll see there the kinds of policy conversations that you will be involved in if you decide to come here to Crawford. But Anna Greta, for now, would you like to set the scene for today's conversation? This is a conversation that I am really looking forward to. Sharon, Australia is a land of extreme landscapes, from lush tropical rainforests to alpine snowy mountains, from arid deserts to crystal waterways and beaches. We are so lucky to call this beautiful country home. Also calling this country home are some of the world's most unique animals, from platypus to crocodiles, wombats to gliders, koalas to snakes, creatures great and small contribute to our national identity and our reputation around the world. For over 60,000 years, First Nations Australians have cared for the land and protected these precious animals and the environment in which they live. Today, Australia has one of the highest mammalian extinction rates in the world. Climate change perpetuates and accelerates this vulnerability of our ecosystems and natural disasters destroy animal homes and lives, as we saw during Black Summer. As Australia is on the cusp of legislating a climate bill, perhaps in the next week or so, that would see an emissions reduction target of 43%, with debates persisting on whether new coal mines should be opened and with extreme weather events causing significant disruption and loss of life and home, just how dire is the state of the environment? What can we do to protect and prioritise our environment and its biodiversity And how do we ensure that the next State of the Environment report, due in four and a half years, is more responsive to the challenges that we're facing now? To help us unpack these questions, we're joined by a very special colleague from the Australian National University, Professor David Lindenmeyer. David, would you like to introduce yourself to the pod? Sure. Thank you very much. Um, My name is David Lindenmeyer. I'm from the Fenner School of Environment and Society. I've worked at the ANU for a very, very long time, since 1992. And I specialise in biodiversity research in uh, in landscapes, in forests, woodlands, uh, reserves, plantations. I've worked across a whole lot of areas for the past 40 years. So um, I suppose I bring a, a whole lot of different perspectives to this this sort of whole arena of biodiversity conservation and, and policies associated with that. David, it's it's great to have you with us today. And I wanted to start by asking you a little bit about that fantastic piece that you recently wrote for the conversation. Um, and we'll leave a link in that for our, our listeners to, to have a look at. And in that piece, you wrote about a hypothetical penguin farm um, in the middle of Australia in the central desert. Um, and you, you framed that in, as an analogy for what's happening in Australia around environmental policy and particularly in response to the State of the Environment report just being published. I wonder if we can begin by asking you to just kind of talk us through that really creative analogy to give us an overview of the State of the Rep- Environment report and what kind of situation we're in in Australia at the moment. Yeah, it's an, it's an interesting um, journey, that one. So. I suppose it, watching what's been going on in the environment space for many decades now, I've seen so many ridiculous situations where somebody comes up with an absolutely harebrained idea, government thinks it's exciting, jobs and growth in the regions, then government co-investment, um, government biocrats sort of jump around and work out how to make the minister look good and, and push ahead with something that's completely daft. And then the all these things sort of aligned, and this idea of a this idea of a 
a penguin farm in Alice Springs. What could be more absurd than a cold climate, almost Antarctic bird, basically being reared in one of the, the hottest and driest parts of Australia? It's not even not even a, an aquatic environment that it comes from, a marine one. But it just it just triggered all these kinds of absurdities. So this this notion of someone announcing penguins are us, a big company, to farm penguins in Alice Springs, to uh, produce feathers for the feather market in in Europe, which were then going to be important for solar panels and batteries as a replacement for lithium. The the environment minister ticking it off. With special conditions, it wasn't going to be nearly as big. It was originally going to be 750,000 penguins, but now it's only going to be 300,000 penguins and it's going to be world's best practice penguin farming. And the minister's there announcing it as important for jobs and growth in regional Australia. This will be a big export for the country. And, of course, there'll be offsets because they have to divert an entire river system to keep the water up to the penguins. Uh, It just goes on. And then the, the proponent, Penguins Are Us, turns out to be a donor to one of the major parties. Penguins Are Us are going to do the monitoring, and we know that the monitoring is going to be just woeful. We won't see any good data from it. And I was just thinking, well, why don't I write this as a story? And when I first wrote, wrote it for the conversation, the editor said, we have to edit it pretty strongly because you've written a press release and if people read the read the press release, they'll actually think it's real. They'll think it's what's actually going to happen. And um, so we had to edit it back. And a number of people who have written to me now and other media that have done this from Barcelona to Berlin, I kid you not, have actually asked for the press release that went with it. And it's just so, it's so mind-numbingly silly, but this is how it often happens. The minister there is there making a big announcement. The minister's department is told that this project's going to go ahead and the biocrats have to run around to make it look as though everything's in place. The monitoring's appalling. You can't ever do anything with it. The offsets are rubbish. And I was talking to one of my PhD, former PhD students who has just worked for a large government department, and she said to me, David, this idea is actually very close to the mark. There's just been a new potash mine put into place in Lake Mackay. Now, Lake Mackay is about a thousand kilometres southeast of Wyndham in the Kimberleys, almost as remote as you can get in Australia. That's where the potash mine is going. You have to bulldoze a new road a thousand kilometres to get to Wyndham to be able to export the potash for fertiliser. And in doing so, you're going to have to go through prime habitat for bilbies and night parrots recently rediscovered night parrots, long thought extinct. And I just shook my head and thought, this is what's wrong in so many aspects of environmental policy, be it poor monitoring, terrible decision-making, woeful monitoring, poor environmental laws. Um, it's, It's such an important situation. And rather than cast it as this is everything that's wrong, I just thought I'd write a parody mocking this whole process and it's been remarkable the number of people that have followed up and and the, the amount of media I've done with the penguin farming story is really quite remarkable. <laughs> 
It, it really is a very, very clever piece. And it has every buzzword in it that you could possibly imagine, which is possibly why um, the conversation were worried that it might actually be mistaken for a real policy. And, and I've got to say, when I was reading it, I wondered if someone would latch onto it and think, here's an idea, why don't we pursue this? But- <laughs> well, that's, that's exactly right. It's the sort of thing you might you might actually see on The Chaser or, uh, or on Sean McAuliffe, something so daft. And Actually, the editor of the conversations said, oh, is that a real thing? And then said, oh, no, it's it's a piss take. And, um, yes, so she decided that if she could be fooled by it, then maybe we better change it. And I think it's a shame we lost the press release because the press release was waxing lyrical about how this is going to be world's best practice for penguin farming and this is jobs and growth in rural Australia and it had to be good. And you could you could almost see... You could almost see the press, you know, there out burning in the middle of the desert with their cameras and a minister there in their Akubra. So, and then the people with the, the wagging heads in the background, you could, you could just about see it, couldn't you, really? And it's, um, that's the shame of it all. I've got the image in my mind as you're talking about it, but it does tell us something really deeply disturbing about the state of environmental policy in Australia when um, a piece like that could be perhaps mistaken for something that's real. And so, David, we want to talk through some of those issues that you raised because in that piece you raised so many critical issues around what's going wrong. But can we perhaps take a step back to do a little bit of framing? Australia has a unique ecosystem. Can we can can I ask you to talk us through how European settlement is impacted and why biodiversity is so so especially important in Australia? Now I'm conscious that that's a, a huge topic to cover, but perhaps you could just give us the the kind of the short grab on what it is that's unique and why why biodiversity matters so much in this country. Yeah. Okay. Wow. Um... Let me summarise my whole career in, in a couple of minutes. <laughs> so um, one of the, the remarkable things about this place is that it's a massive island that's been isolated from the rest of the world for several million years and almost everything that occurs here occurs nowhere else, with the possible exception of Papua New Guinea, which was part of the sort of broader Australian continent when, uh, when sea levels were a lot lower. And so what that means is that so much of Australia's flora and fauna has really developed in the absence of contact from elsewhere. And so when, when white colonisation occurred, the, the impacts on the environment have really been quite extraordinary because the country does function very differently ecologically than many other parts of the world. So, you know, we're the, we're the driest uh, vegetated continent. We have the most variable rainfall patterns, most variable stream flow, some of the hottest temperatures anywhere in the world, some of the most diverse environments from alpine systems through to to tropical rainforests. The list goes on. You know, we've got the world's biggest burrowing animal, the, the uh, most of the world's marsupials, um, a huge proportion of the world's snakes and lizards, uh, just the number of things that, that are unique to this continent and nowhere else is, is really quite quite remarkable. We have about... 5.7% of the world's land mass and about 10% of the world's species. So really quite remarkable in many ways. And most of those species are entirely maladapted to the kinds of often medieval farming practices that came from from, from Europe 
and medieval approaches to, to using land. And so our soils are very poor and very, very degradable and hooved animals were certainly a bad news for, for our species. And Australia is most incredibly impacted by invasive species that have had enormous impacts. So as a consequence, we lead the world in mammal extinctions. Uh, we, lead, we lead the world in, in so many other forms of land degradation. You know, we're amongst one of the, the, the highest in terms of land clearing anywhere on the planet, but also one of the only developed countries that are clearing land at the rate that we are. So by virtually every yardstick that we can imagine, Australia is an incredibly poor performer in this space. And then from a policy perspective, we've, uh, we've got very weak environmental laws and a woeful level of underinvestment in, in environmental outcomes. And, and this is really a sort of a cataclysmic alignment of planets because we're losing species still. You know, we lost three vertebrate species in the last decade alone. So our rate of mammal and, and other extinctions is not declining. Yet our, our rate of investment has actually been declining dramatically as well. And, and so all of these stars are, are badly aligned for the, for the environmental outcomes that we've presently got. David, we spoke with Kelly O'Shaughnessy from the Australian Conservation Foundation earlier in the year about mammalian extinction in Australia, and she certainly highlighted the devastating impacts of the inadequate environmental protection laws. And last week, we talked with Mark, Mark Howden about the, the compounding issue of climate change. It sounds to me like from the extraordinary uh, landscape that you've painted to begin this conversation, that the State of the Environment report that was released recently was not a particular surprise. One of the issues that came up in that State of the Environment report was that 93% of our terrestrial habitat that's used by threatened species and that was cleared between 2000 and 2017 wasn't even referred to the federal government for any sort of assessment under our national laws. And I'm wondering why that is. Uh, is there a scope, do you think, to centralise conservation efforts in Australia? Would, would that even help us? Yeah, well, that's a, that's a really tough question to answer. I think also, if we, there's many dimensions to that, and if we, if we unpack that a little bit, one of, the, one of the issues is that we treat virtually every development application as an isolated instance. So what tends to happen is that the cumulative effects of these changes are never really taken into account, and every small development seems like it's small and trivial and therefore gets ticked off as being okay. But really the combined impacts of these changes is never really really taken into account. So what tends to happen then is, is the sort of the cliché, and it is a cliché because like most cliches, it's actually real, is that you end up with death by a thousand cuts because what tends to happen is that you don't take into account what's happened next door or next door to that or the door after that and the next door after that. And I'll give you a really good example of, of how these things are not, not assessed in context. So about two years ago, I was asked to comment on proposals for a huge new coal mine southwest of Mackay in Queensland and the two species of concern in that area were the koala and the greater, greater glider. Now, both of those species are endangered species. Greater glider has just been uplisted. Now, it's a remarkable animal. It's like a small gliding koala and now in serious trouble everywhere it occurs. Yet none of the legislation was really triggered to any serious extent um, because it was only, quote, unquote, 6,000 hectares 
and there was supposed to be a viable offset. So we're coming back to the penguin farm uh, charade that we talked about before. But it wasn't that what wasn't taken into account was that there were coal mines proposed not just in that 6,000 hectares of open cut area, but other coal mines next door and yet other ones next door to that and next door to that. Yet the legislation didn't allow us to really pull together all of the kinds of problems that we're dealing with in this space. It's, it's, um, it, it, it's hopeless in many ways that we, we can't do that. So a smart developer will develop something that's just under the threshold and get away with it, and then the next one will um, then they'll put in another development application which is just under the threshold, and, and we see these kinds of cumulative impacts. And it's very hard to get, to get any change in that uh, in that space, and it's been that way for since Robert Hill um, introduced that legislation in the late nineteen nineties. David, you you mentioned at the beginning of this conversation that the the kinds of environmental monitoring that we have are completely inadequate, and this seems to be part of the issue as well. That it's not only a, a problem. Um, that we see around the the design or the, and the approval of new projects, but it's also the fact that there's no monitoring of what's already happening, and so things continually slip slip under the radar. Can you talk us through a little bit more about why environmental monitoring is so important, and what you would like to see shift so that we're doing that a little better than we are now? Okay, so again, there's there's a lot to unpack there. So the first thing is that the record on environmental monitoring in Australia is worse than woeful. So let's let's just make that quite clear right from the start. The vast majority of ecosystems in the vast majority of parts of Australia simply have no serious long term data to be able to tell them what tell us what's going on. And this has been a problem with the state of environment reports right from the very start of when they first began to be produced in 1996. And it's still the case. So the most recent State of Environment report had almost no time series data in it to be able to tell us what's going on in particular ecosystems. And I think that's just nothing short of disgraceful across Australia. And we know that it can be done. There are countries that do their monitoring properly and report properly in their State of Environment reports. Switzerland is, a, is an example, but there are others as well. Other countries, even Rwanda does it better than Australia. So that, that's just where it's at. Australia is woeful in the monitoring space. It's environmental, its ecosystems are poorly monitored, its threatened species are largely unmonitored, most of our major environmental programs are poorly monitored and seriously the, the flotilla, flotilla of, of biocrats that are associated with these major programs still don't understand that 30 years later. So one of the problems then with our penguin farm or with our massive coal mine is that, first of all, if monitoring is done, it's done by the proponent and it's invariably terrible quality monitoring. And I think that's partly deliberate so that if there is a problem, you make sure that you design your monitoring in a way so that you won't actually be able to detect a problem if there was one occurring. The second thing is because there's been no broader monitoring in some of these ecosystems, that means that we've got very little to compare against when we're looking at the impacts of an environmental project. So, for example, in the case of our penguin farming, we don't really 
have the data to be able to say how our normal desert environments are changing over time as a baseline against which to compare the place where we're going to, to do the penguin farming. And so therein lies a major problem because we can't really tell whether the impact on, of, of penguin farms is serious or not. So really what's happening is that we, we're really pissing around in the dark when it comes to many of these environmental problems because we simply don't have the data to inform us of how things are changing but also what happens when we make an investment, for example, to do landscape restoration or to limit the effects of, of foxes and cats in the ecosystems, we don't actually have the data to tell us whether or not things are getting better and whether our intervention is actually working. So it's, it's really quite extraordinary. Imagine if you ran a business, a big business, or ran the Australian economy without a set of indicators and a, and a data collection approach to tell you what's happening. People would, people in business wouldn't think that that's appropriate or even possible, yet that's what we do with the billions of dollars of investments in the environment space. David, is, is there one thing that you think, it's probably not never one thing, but in terms of priorities, what do we need to shift to turn that around as rapidly as possible? Is it political will? Is it a change of policy? Um, what is it that we need to, to, to really be pushing for in terms of change? I think there's several things that need to happen here that aren't necessarily that difficult to do. One is, and I often think that, that it's crazy, some people think it's crazy, is I actually think we need to set up a, a, an environmental monitoring and management agency. And that that actually needs to be a statutory authority like the Australian Bureau of Statistics, which has... Uh, an arm's length um, oversight on these things so that there's a, a repository for, for funding monitoring programs, for gathering data to really understand what's happening. Just as the Australian Bureau of Statistics does, you know, it samples farms, it samples uh, businesses, it, it samples all kinds of economic indicators to tell us how the national environmental account, uh, national economic accounts are going. So we need something equivalent to that at the, the, the whole of government level to be able to coordinate across these, these, uh, these environmental issues. And that agency also should have carriage over who does the monitoring. Because if a proponent does the monitoring, we know that it'll be invariably poor, we know that the data will be terrible, and we know that we won't be able to tell if something's going, getting worse or getting better or whether there's been an impact or not. And so I think there are ways to, to create greater independence, greater oversight. Now, that's going to take some money and it's going to take some investment, but we know that our level of investment in the environment is about 10% of what it needs to be. And we need to get serious about our investments in the environment because so many of our industries actually depend on the environment being in a good space. David, we're, we're going to take a break in just a moment, and this has all been pretty depressing, as it often is when we talk about Australia's approach to the environment and our policies around the environment. But as we lead into the break, I just wanted to, to ask you about something that um, is a little more positive, and that's the work that you've been doing around Birdcast. Um, and this is something that's in the running for the Eureka Prize, which is a, a major science prize. Can you just tell us a little bit about what Birdcast is and why the kind of technology that you're using is, is so important to, uh, to improving the situation that we find ourselves in? 
Yeah, look, it is it is possible to get uh, down in the dumps with all the doom and gloom in the environment. And I, I work really hard to, to be as positive as I can and to think about ways to solve problems. And I think one of the most exciting projects that we've been involved in for the last 20-odd years has been working in the temperate woodlands, the wheat sheep belt of eastern Australia. And we've been monitoring how things change on farms when farmers invest in the natural assets on their farms, their farm dams, their shelter belts, their replanted areas, their patches of remnant woodland, their patches of, of native grasslands. And we can actually see really positive benefits from making investments to improve the condition of those assets. And one of the things that we've been doing for the last two decades is collecting really detailed bird data on how ecosystems are changing and the birds in those environments are changing. And they respond really strongly to plantings, uh, grazing control, revegetating farm dams, those kinds of things. So we've actually used the data sets from the last 20 years to create a series of uh, statistical models and then visualisation tools about the biodiversity dividends of improving the natural assets on your farms. And so this can actually show farmers how the data are used, but also how you can improve the natural assets and get a major biodiversity dividend from having done that, and how you can integrate agricultural production with biodiversity conservation. So we can go to a particular farm, we can see how that farm has changed over time, we can use the monitoring data to show which new species, which threatened species, which species of conservation concern, you will get as part of the biodiversity dividend of having made those changes. So it's fantastic as an education tool, but it also as a, cool, as a tool to be able to catalyse change on the ground. And really things are, things are changing quite radically in some of these places, which is a really positive outcome because farmers often want to know what they can do to make a contribution but still be sort of financially viable in the farming space at the same time. That is such a beautiful example of some of the positive things that are happening. And I think that is a perfect place for us to take a very short break. And we will be back in just a moment with David Linden Mayer. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Around the world, democracies are in crisis. Leaders have become followers. Populists offer glib solutions to complex problems, and people search for answers. Block out the noise. Each week on Democracy Sausage, we go deeper to bring you insights from leading scholars, journalists and commentators to help you make sense of the world. I'm Mark Kenny from the Australian National University. Join me at the Democracy Sausage Hotplate every Monday and Thursday. 
Listeners, welcome back. We're here with David Lindenmeyer. We're talking about biodiversity and its importance in the Australian context particularly, and we've been talking about the recent State of the Environment report uh, and the devastating uh, results that we can see from that report. Um, And we started today's episode by talking about David's piece in the conversation about penguin farming in Central Australia. Uh, And in that piece and part of that conversation, we've talked a little bit about biodiversity offsetting. David, I wonder if you might talk us through biodiversity offsetting. What is it and how well do we do it in Australia? What role does it have to play? Okay, so a biodiversity offset is where there's a development in a particular area and so we know that some habitat is going to be destroyed. And what we do is we offset the impact of that by bolstering conservation outcomes somewhere else. So somewhere that was that was also going to be developed but has been spared from development and we're going to save that area and actually where we can improve that area for a biodiversity outcome. So that's a sort of a crude sort of assessment of, of biodiversity offsets. The um, and, and there's a long history of these kinds of things around the world. So a, a, an example at a sort of a national level was that the Norwegians were very concerned about their greenhouse gas emissions as a consequence of all the money they made from mining gas and, and oil in the North Sea. So to assuage their guilt in that space, they tried to invest in forest conservation in, in Indonesia. And... Like so many offsets, in the end, it proved to be a bit of a train wreck because many of those areas went on to be uh, to be cleared anyway or converted to oil palm plantations. And so really it was a, a failed offsetting process. And that's exactly what we see replicated in many parts of Australia is that the, the underlying philosophy of offsets is that there should be no net loss no net loss of habitat, no net loss of populations, no net loss of species. But the reality is that this almost never happens because the exchange of one area for another is not a true exchange. It's not It's not a real process because the area that's going to be lost is often unique and the place that was going to be used for the offset is actually not like for like. It's something completely different. So in our in the case of our penguin farm, the whole idea was that we were going to have to completely divert a, an entire river system to create the, the aquatic environment for our marine birds, which is ridiculous. But the outcome was that they were going to plant trees on the neighbouring pastoral lease to offset the problem. Problem is we're in the desert and planting trees in the desert is often not a smart thing to do. And so it's not a true offset. And people would say, well, that's ridiculous. Well, the reality is that that kind of outcome is exactly what's being seen in many parts of Australia virtually as we speak. David, I just wonder how we value biodiversity in this context. And we look at, do we look at, at land um, area? Are we looking at a carbon emission framework? What sort of economic framework do we put around the value of biodiversity when we can come up with offsets that clearly don't work? Well, I don't think we value biodiversity appropriately at all. And and often what happens is that the value of biodiversity is so low that the um, that the, the offset for it looks looks handsome, but in fact is is very ugly. Um, to to give you an idea, in a Victorian forest context, where we've worked for nearly four decades, 
the value of the entire forest estate by Vic Forests, which is the Victorian government's own logging industry, the value is just a little bit north of not $40 million, which when you think about it for a state like Victoria is about the equivalent of, of a pizza for each man, woman and child in that, in that state. Yet we know that the value of the water associated with those same forests just in, in one particular area is about 25 times the value of the wood chips from the same forest. So being able to value directly biodiversity in that context is very difficult unless it's tied with another form of natural asset, for example, like the value of carbon in a carbon market or the value of water for human consumption. And that's where this notion of, of uh, natural environmental accounting or the system of, of economic and environmental accounting that's been developed by the United Nations sometimes can become really quite potent in that space. David, just to, to follow up on, on that, one of the things that we often talk about on the podcast is the value, the non-monetary value that we can give to things that are really important to us. So caring for one another, caring for country. When we're talking about these kinds of issues, about the offsets and how we place a value on them, is it always a, a dollar value or a monetary value that's thought about? Or do we have a mechanism of being able to seriously apply a value that is beyond a monetary value. Is that something that ever enters the equation? Uh, it has entered the equation at various stages with varying degrees of success. So sometimes there are people that, that engage in things like contingency, contingency valuation where you do a survey about how much people are prepared to save a particular species. And I, I've seen that done in, in several places. But, but often to, to be able to make a difference in terms of, of, of policy in this space, sometimes you have to, to speak the same language as policymakers and, and economists. And I think one of the best examples I've seen of that actually comes from not from Australia but from Botswana. And a colleague of mine, Michael Varden, who specialises in environmental accounting, was asked to do the nation's environmental accounts and one of the big issues there, competing issues, is water, not surprisingly. And, and Michael actually created a set of accounts to look at the value of water for different industries and how they compete for that resource. So one of the two of the comp competing entities are water for agriculture, particularly cattle, versus, of all things, water for elephants as part of the ecotourism industry in Botswana. So Michael put together the agricultural accounts for that country and then the tourism satellite accounts for that country. And the value of water for elephants is many, many times greater than the value of water for, for cattle. And so the best outcome for water in that country is to actually invest in the ecotourism industry. And that was really the only way that government was able to be persuaded that they needed less cattle and more water for elephants, given how lucrative the tourism industry was relative to the agriculture industry. And so that was a very, I think that was a, a language that really spoke to policymakers and, and a way of speaking to economists in that country as to how to, to best guide policy in that space. 
David, let's stay on on the theme of of money for just a moment. And you pointed out the current environmental spending in Australia is about 15% of what is required to avoid extinction and to recover threatened species. I mean, that's genuinely horrifying to hear that. When we talk about funding, can you explain to us what that funding actually covers when it comes to species protections? And 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 what the additional money would do if we actually were spending the amount required to be able to avoid extinction and, and recover those species that are that are so threatened. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, and again, there's there's several ways to answer that. The the first thing is that yes, the the level of spending on the environment is about one tenth of what it needs to be, and we calculated that based on. Um, the experience with the Endangered Species Act in the USA and how that's actually been quite successful and some species have been delisted as a consequence of the environmental and management interventions that have taken place, controlling disease, stopping poaching, um, changing grazing regimes, those kinds of recovery programs. Australia has an appalling record uh, in comparison and that's partly because under our legislation and our approach, the action statements and the management plans and the recovery recovery plans are actually just documents and they're never properly funded and they're never properly implemented. So what we were working out there was what would it take to actually write all the, the action plans and recovery plans that should be written because the present federal government agency is light years behind on what it's supposed to be doing. And then what would be the investment level required to actually secure these species? So what would happen with that extra money would be that action plans would be written and actions, action plans and recovery plans would be written. They would be implemented they would be properly monitored and they would be guided by good science to make sure that they are effective. So that's where we get to in, in our investment. And it's really very different to what typically happens in government at the moment. So typically what happens in government at the moment is that uh, a minister announces a big program, say $100 million for planting, running around doing planting on farms, then there's this massive exercise to rush around as fast as you can and roll as much money out the door as quickly as possible without actually thinking about how it's going to be designed, how it's going to be monitored. It's just this breakneck speed to get, get dollars out the door. And and so what happens then is that a lot of the threatened species component of all this gets, gets uh, washed over by how quickly you're trying to roll out the funds. So there are ways of, exp- of expending that money much more effectively and in much better ways that give you much better return on investment that we're presently doing. And this is not only true at the federal level, but it's also true at a state level. David, you've just painted a remarkable picture of how we might make structural investment in employment that's related to protecting our natural environment rather than perhaps what's been more of a piecemeal approach. It strikes me that we need a, to inspire action across our biodiversity in its in its totality, and I'm sure many of our listeners may at some point have cuddled a koala at a wildlife park or in, enjoyed some of the extraordinary native wildlife that we have in the Australian context. 
how do we normalize this level of care and empathy for for the, for the entire biodiversity for, for particularly thinking about some of the perhaps less attractive or less iconic wildlife like our lizards and birds and frogs our ants our, our soil our trees are there any initiatives that you know of that are spreading the word on this that our listeners should know about oh in many cases i think what's often needed is ecosystem management in those cases so yes, we might we might decide that we're going to, to choose an iconic species uh, like a, a superb parrot or a koala or a tiger quoll, one of those those extraordinary animals. But in choosing those those particular flagship species, we will often need to have large areas of relatively intact ecosystems that are well managed and have got good interventions to conserve those species. And if we choose a set of indicator species or surrogate species in the right way, we can actually end up conserving a lot of other biodiversity that typically goes with it. And that really leads to quite informed ecosystem management of entire systems. And so, so um, what, I, what I think is often needed is to think deeply about the kinds of ecosystems that we're dealing with. And in many cases, we will bring a lot of other biodiversity along with it, including things that many people would find horrifying but are nevertheless important in the way that those ecosystems function. So, for example, if we, if we limit grazing pressure in many of our tropical savanna ecosystems, we will reduce the pressure on some of our small, small and medium-sized mammals at the same time as controlling grazing pressure and changing fire frequency and, and at the same time, many of the reptile fauna from goannas through to death adders are likely to do better as part of ecosystem integrity in that case. So there, there often needs to be ecosystem monitoring as well as endangered species monitoring because endangered species exist within these ecosystems. And so I think there are ways to solve these problems and bring broader biodiversity in, into this space uh, even some of the things that most people would would not particularly bond very strongly with, but ne- are nevertheless very important parts of how those environments function. There's been a, a lot of discussion in Australia of late about integrity in politics, and that was a major election issue, as was climate change. David, you've noted, um, including in that fabulous piece about the penguin farm, that Australia's political donation system lacks transparency. How does that lack of transparency impact on conservation efforts? Well, the lack of transparency has been with us for a long time, and it's it's quite clear that you know large corporations make big donations not because it makes them feel good, uh, but because it buys them influence. And you can see that all the time. You know, I get called up to to Parliament House on a regular basis, and I'll be sitting in a minister's uh, the waiting room in a minister's office and there'll be a whole series of lobbyists that are there that are paid large amounts of money to to prosecute the case for their industry, whether it's the forest industry, the mining industry, the banana industry, whatever else, they're there. And that, to me, that buys undue influence in our political process. And, and we can see that, for example, with the climate wars that we've had for the last decade. You know, there are entire television stations that are dedicated to... to um, creating angst and confusion about whether climate change is really taking place, despite the fact that, you know, 
northeastern New South Wales and southeast Queensland seem to be perennially underwater at the moment as a consequence of, of the repeated floods we've had and previous, previous to that, the, the fact that half the country seemed to be burning just about the entire summer. So I think that there is a need for political reform. I remember as back as far as Kevin Rudd's regime being asked about this same question and about the importance of decoupling the political process from the lobbying and influence peddling process so that we can have good governance for what's right rather than uh, what's what's uh, appropriate for a particular industry. You know, I've heard it said recently that the debate over climate for the last decade was about right versus left, whereas I think the debate over climate should have been about what's right versus what's wrong. And it's pretty clear that what's wrong was backed by a lot of very big vested interests that are that have helped us into this very parlous situation that we're in at the moment. David, this is a conversation that I think we, we would like to continue for much, much longer, but we're going to need to draw it to a close. We do hope you'll come back again at some point to, to talk through some of these issues further. But I wanted to... to to wind up this conversation today by asking about the State of the Environment Report. That's a report that's released every five years. And I wonder if you could share with us what you hope the 2026 report looks like. So perhaps putting aside for a moment some of the the, the really confronting realities that we've talked about, but to think about hope and optimism um, and what in a world that where things start to shift – you hope that report looks like? Wow, what a good idea. <laughs> um, if only. <laughs> well, the first thing is that uh, government spending is a reflection of their priorities and the environment clearly has to be a priority. And and we've seen that with so many voters in the last election that they're really deeply concerned about the environment. And poor environmental management, one of the, the symptoms of that is actually the, how rapidly the climate is changing and how rapidly biodiversity is being lost. So my hope is that there'll be proper investment in the environment to much higher levels than it is now. Currently, it's about three cents that is spent in every $100 of government spend. And I think that's appalling. And it's been going south uh, rapidly since uh, since part of the, the last part of the Rudd regime. And that has to turn around if we're going to make any progress in that space. So proper proper spending, I hope that we end up with a proper management agency that will allow us to, to make sure that that spending is appropriate. So that's a, a proper statutory authority that collects the data, that reflects what's happening, helps us create environmental accounts to show us what's happening, and those environmental accounts match our national economic accounts. And I'm, I'm really hoping that we can move away very quickly from fossil fuels into, into other forms of electrification and in doing that start to, to recalibrate some of the important things in the Australian environment. For example, starting some, some substantial restoration programs in Australia's agricultural landscapes, um, moving quickly out of native forest logging because that's where we'll get some of our largest carbon abatement and some of our largest biodiversity dividends very quickly. So I think, think there's some really critical things to be done there. The other thing that I think is critical that was lost towards the end of the last government was a, a threatened species recovery hub 
Now, I was part of that, and, and it sounds like I'm, I'm grinding axes and I've got a highly vested interest, but that was actually a really successful partnership between science and land managers to, to help foster best practice on the ground threatened species recovery. And there were many examples of really highly successful recovery outcomes because of that partnership of science, Indigenous knowledge and land managers. And those kinds of initiatives don't have to cost a lot of money to be very successful. So I think there's some really good wins that could be had in this space very quickly with some good policy making. And my hope is that the new Environment Minister will really step up to the plate and be a force within Cabinet to change the trajectory of Australia's environment rather than adding yet another five years to what's already an appalling record. David, I, I think that's the kind of vision that we would all like to see for for that environment report for the next five years and the kind of vision that we would all like to see play out in Australia. And I think hearing what can happen does give us some some hope about what will happen. Thank you so much for joining us today, David. It's been a fantastic conversation. Thank you very much. It's been great. Sharon, that was a, an amazing conversation with David Lindenmeyer. And for me, he does an extraordinary job of highlighting the central importance of, of, of both the preciousness of Australian biodiversity, its unique landscape, uh, the way that he set the scene at the beginning, asking us to genuinely appreciate that this is an island, it's an island that's evolved over many hundreds of thousands of years, and that what happens here doesn't happen anywhere else in the world. And I think he painted quite a remarkable uh, picture of how we've failed to appreciate that, particularly failed to appreciate it economically. Our policy frameworks have failed to appreciate the importance of the interconnected risks um, and that the sort of devastation we've seen that translates from policy failure, including problems with extinction and, and loss of habitat that will be very difficult to replace. It, it's a sobering landscape that he paints. But the, the thought experiment that he begins this conversation with, the, the penguins in the centre of, of uh, Australia, is quite a remarkable uh, challenge to us, really thinking about what we do when we are looking at development projects that might impact on the environment around us and the ways in which we can respond better, the sorts of policy changes that could take place. How did you find the conversation? Yeah, I really enjoyed that conversation. I think David's someone who's always worth listening to and he has such depth and breadth of knowledge on issues of biodiversity and conservation. Um, that that um, Penguins in the Desert piece was really inspired. Uh, one of the most interesting parts of it, of course, is that it could have been mistaken for reality. Um, and I think that tells us something about the state of debate and the state of policymaking in Australia as it has been for many, many years now. But I think David, David made one comment that really struck me, and it was such a simple comment in some ways. And he said, this is not about left and right in terms, in terms of politics. This is about right and wrong. And I think that's where we are in Australia on this issue and on many others. We need to move beyond the politics. We know from the science and from the evidence what the challenges are. We know from some of the, the, the amazing thinkers that we often talk to on the pod what the solutions can be. And so we have a way forward that moves beyond right and left towards saying this is wrong and this is the direction that we need to move in. There's always going to be debate about exactly what we do. But I think we, we have seen a growing consensus 
about what is wrong. We've seen that amongst scientists. There is no longer any credible debate around the denial of climate change. And we saw in the election the enthusiasm of the Australian people to see a different approach. Um, and so I think in that in that simple comment of, you know, we need to think about what's right and wrong, we have some really deep ways of, of thinking about the future. And I love the way David brings together, you know, the, the science, he paints the picture of, of what our unique environment is, and he picks up on those issues of policy and good governance. And, and that's inspirational to listen to. Uh, look, I think you've just highlighted the central point that he made that I, it is so powerful, the uh, idea that we might need to do what is right. Um, and I agree with you. I think that part of the reason we can now talk with optimism is because we've seen some of that political change translate uh, in the recent election. The other themes that are worth highlighting, as I think they'll come up across the, the series that we're doing here on Systems Under Strain, is the need to have a, ta- a whole of system approach, that taking a piecemeal approach often results in, in death by a thousand cuts if we're looking at what happens in one small part and not considering what happens in the land next to it, uh, that, the, that preservation of biodiversity is really challenging in that environment. And again, I think we see similar conversations when we're talking about climate change, if we're separating issues of mitigation and adaptation and we're not looking at the, the whole system approach, then we're, we're failing to really contend with the issue. So D- David makes yet another compelling pitch for a whole of system interaction and approach, widening our lens of view. Um, and taking taking that whole view. Um, are, these are themes that I think will continue to emerge. And I, I'm just wondering, and, and I think I mentioned last week, that we should test the value care framework against the conversation we've had today. I think he is again charging us to care for our environment, to care for and understand how important biodiversity and the natural environment is in the Australian context, to recognise that it's not replaceable and therefore caring for what is unique and centrally important in Australia should be a priority. Yeah, and I think we will see some of those themes about the importance of systems thinking, the importance of engaging with complexity, um, and the importance of valuing care across the many issues that we talk about in this mini-series um, as we move beyond climate, the environment and biodiversity to a range of other systems that are in urgent need of some repair. So listeners do stay with us over the next several weeks as we explore these issues identify what the challenges are but also look for the solutions i think both anna greta and i are very excited about the conversations that we are going to have in the near future absolutely i'm just not sure how long that goes on for that's (laughs) we we could be talking about this for a very long time but we've got the rest of the year This podcast is produced by policyforum.net and we'll leave a link to that fabulous publication about the penguins in the desert that we talked about in our show notes. We love hearing from our audience, so please do reach out to us. You can contact us on Twitter at APPS Policy Forum. That's at Apps Policy Forum. You can email us at podcast at policyforum.net or just get in touch via our Facebook group at Policy Forum Pod. We'll be back with another episode in what Arna Greta and I think is is shaping up to be a very exciting mini-series next week. But for now, from me, Sharon Bessel, it's bye-bye for now. And from me, Arna Greta Hunter, look forward to seeing you next week.
Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm. 